0: If you'll take your Bibles and uh, open to the book of Joel, it's a few pages before Jonah, if you uh, have been tracking along in there. And we're going to look at jo- or Joel chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. It's kind of funny, you know, Pastor Kevin and I thought about, what are we going to preach this summer? And we said, well, we'll preach the Jays, except for Jeremiah, because he's too big. Joel, Jonah, and Job. And what we learned is that these books are kind of related. It's been kind of fun. That was by accident, but it's been fun to study them. And uh, so this week we're going to look at, in Jonah, or Joel, I'm going to say that a million times. Joel, uh, what heartfelt repentance looks like. Really what God wants to teach us through Joel is that heartfelt repentance, this is always the pathway back into relationship with God. And that we should be quick to repent based on God's character. As, as we sang and talked about, He's good and gracious and loving. And that should draw us back in. By faith we come to Him in repentance, knowing that He's good and worthy of following. And so we'll look at Joel this morning in three uh, sections here. Number one, Joel tells us about this crazy locust plague in Joel 1, 1 through 20. Then he's going to tell us secondly about a coming army, another day of the Lord in Joel 2, and then the the remedy, which is repentance in Joel 2, 12 through 17. So let's look at this crazy locust plague that Joel describes for us here. It's really kind of this Alfred Hitchcock type of situation that has come on Jerusalem with locusts coming everywhere, and Joel addresses four different groups of people in the beginning of his book, talking about this plague. And the first one is the elders. Look at look at what he says here. Joel 1, 1 through 4. It says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so Joel is addressing the people saying this locust plague, it's way beyond anything you've experienced. And in fact, all you old old folks out there, you should let everybody know, we've never seen anything like this. And you ought to lay it to heart because God is doing something. He wants to get their attention. Has that ever happened to you? Ever seen something extraordinary in the world and go, wait a second, God's saying something to me? I can think back even to the days of 9-11 when the world seemed to pause and I thought, what's God doing here? Right? What's he saying? Maybe even COVID was that for you or the whole world paused. It got your attention. I think a lot of us have done lots of soul-searching in the last couple of years, God got our attention, right? And that's what's happening here. God is using a fantastical, abnormal event, giant locust plague, to wake the people up and say, people, you're, you're in sin. Turn back to me. I can remember even back uh, when I was in the first grade. This is 1986, for some of you that can remember that day. And in Tennessee, they have these things called cicadas. You guys know what these are? And every 13 to 17 years, these things hatch, and they come out all over everything, and that was a particularly uh, fantastic year for cicadas, and they were on everything. In fact, I think we have a few pictures of them up here. There's these little red, beady-eyed bugs, and they are on everything, and in fact, they like things that buzz, so if you run your weed eater, you'll be covered in them. I mean, like, covered. And so in first grade, I used to got friendly with them and used to take them and make them sing by their wings, and then I would... Put them on little girls to make them sing. (laughs) And they kind of come out of these shells. I think we have these pictures. They emerge out of these shells. And so I would hang these shells all over my body. But I remembered that, right? These things are memorable. And that's what's going on in Joel. This great thing, this great plague is coming. He's saying God is waking us up. He's using these fantastical moments to wake us up to something bigger he's got something to say in fact look what he goes on to address the drunkards look what he says in verse 5 he says awake you drunkards weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because the sweet wine it's cut off from your mouth for a nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number its teeth are like lions it has fangs of a lioness It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree that is stripped off the bark and thrown it down and the branches are white. Saying drunkards, he's calling out, you've been enjoying the bounty of the wine, but you better wake up. Right? It's as if God just stole the drink right out of their hand, right from their mouth. This great mass of locusts seem like these fierce animals with fierce teeth and they devoured everything. The grapevine, the trees, the bark, there's nothing left. And it points to the fact that Israel was living in great abundance, right? They had great abundance of wine and produce and life was good. And and often when life is good, what do we do? We start drifting from God, start enjoying the world and forgetting about God because we don't need him. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19 that it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's got all he needs. Why does he need God? We often use our abundance of resources to indulge in ourselves and all the things that we like, party and drift away. And God says, wake up. Wake up, you're in danger. I want you to come back to me. And so where have you let the abundance of our American life cause you to drift from God? God says, wake up, don't do that. I I want you to walk with me. Joel goes on to say that the people ought to lament over this tragedy, realize what's going on, and lament over our situation. And we don't like to lament, right? As Americans, as Christians, we have this positive culture. Everything's got to be up and positive. But God says, no, you need to pause and you need to consider your sin and you need to consider its consequences and wail and weep because it's bad. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offerings cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. The grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. This is strong language. God's saying, You ought to lament over your sin, like a bride who's lost her husband to death. There was a story earlier this year, maybe you've read about a bride who was killed in a car accident just moments after their wedding, right? This is terrible. And Joel says, that's the kind of tears you ought to have over your sin and what I'm doing to you because it's so great and it has driven you far from me. All of it's gone, all the crops, all the fields laid waste. And beyond that, it has halted their worship of God. Because they have no produce, they have no offering to give to God. See, sin is an issue of worship. When we choose to be satisfied by someone or, or something Else other than God, we create idols in our life and we begin to worship these things for the pleasure and the joy that they, they give us. We think they enhance our life and yet we end up walking away from God and serving those things. And instead of worshiping God, now we're serving the, and worshiping this thing. And we've got to deal with God over our sin before we can get back to true worship of Him. In fact, Jesus, you know, I love this parable, Jesus, Matthew 5. He talks about in the Sermon on the Mount if you're on your way to worship and you remember you have sin against your brother, he says you ought to stop worshiping, go out and get it right, and then come back and worship. That's how serious God takes this. I think God would ask us this morning what do you need to get right so that your worship is unhindered? How can you worship God with your whole heart? What's in the way? And then Joel addresses the farmers. Look at verse 11. This verse is for Kevin and all the Nebraskans that he represents. But it says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. All the bounty of the land is gone. All the fruit, all the plants, all the grain, all the good stuff, and the happiness of the people went with it. Because life is going to get real hard. When things are easy, there's food, there's good things, right? But then it's all gone. Maybe you remember back in the p- pandemic, I'd go to the shelf in Walmart to get my favorite little item, and guess what? Not there. Not there. Right? And that made me a little angry. Right? Like where's my favorite thing? Worse than that, the toilet paper, life gets real hard. When you gotta go on a covert mission to find toilet paper in the city, that's not a good day. I can remember many years ago traveling in the Middle East, Pastor Sean and myself have been to this place and we went to a this beautiful wadi on the ocean. Right? that had all these date palms that the guys had farmed for 50 years and then one year a hurricane came and wiped it all out. Right? And we saw it the next year just decimated. Their joy was gone. Right, God had their attention. And sometimes when God strips us of the joys of life, we see where our, our affections really lie. Right? We see what really brings us joy. Is it God or is it all the stuff? And God strips it away and says, I got something to say. You need to pay attention. And then finally, Joel addresses the priests here in this plague. Verse 13 says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering, they're withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders. All the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Saying, priests, you need to wail and lament because God has stopped your worship. Maybe even more than that, you ought to lament because you didn't lead the people very well. That this has come upon them. And you need to gather everybody together. And you need to assemble and you guys need to repent. We need to gather before the Lord. In fact, Joel is going to show us the way out of God's condemnation and judgment here is through repentance based on the character of God. Now, Joel does an interesting thing here in verse 15. He says, look, he's going to call this destruction the day of the Lord. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, it's not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God and this is an important term for Joel and the prophets see the day of the Lord is really anytime God comes and he brings his judgment to get his people right for this their sin and Joel is saying this event this locust plague this is God's day he's doing something he's dealing with our sin he's shown up and it's a crazy thing right important to see that Joel roots this destruction of the locusts in God's hands again Joel just like Jonah affirms that all the events that go on in our world they all come from God's hands God is the primary mover there's nothing that comes into your life that didn't come from God's hands Amos 3 6 it says this does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it the answer is no it's in God's hands Nothing out of God's control, even good and bad, both come from the Lord. This should scare us a bit. Our God is big, right? Powerful, a little wily. We should have a reverent fear of our God. And yet at the same time, it should call us to look to Him for life because He's the only one that can do anything about it. There's no one else. It's only God. In fact, Joel surveys this landscape of destruction and he says, we ought to call out to God. He's the only one that can do something. Verse 19 and 20, he says this, To you, O Lord, I call even the beast of the field pant for you. <laughs> Basically, in the midst of what we're going through, call out to God. This is like Jonah. Even the animals are engaged in what's going on in the world. He says, when you face all these things, call out to God. Right? What are you going through this morning that you need to call out to God? He brought it into your life, so call out to him. He can take it out. He can change it. He can redeem you. He can bring you to life. And so Joel explains this fantastic locust plague, as judgment from God on the people's sin, and he's saying, let's call out to God. But now he's going to see this as a pattern of something greater. Look at this. Let's talk about a coming army here in Joel chapter 2. Look at verse 1, it says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never seen, been seen before, nor again after them through the years of all generations." Now I want you to see Joel's doing something really interesting here. We just talked about the day of the Lord that had come and the locust plague, and now he's saying there's a there's another day of the Lord coming, and it's gonna be all these people. He's saying he's looking forward like this little thing with the locust plague. Actually, that's pointing forward to something even worse that God may do. And that's gonna be to send a great army against Jerusalem. It's hard to know in the book of Joel was written, it could have been written before the exile to Babylon, and so maybe he's talking about the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C., or it could be after the exile, and Joel's talking about the Romans coming in and destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But either way, he's saying, look, guys, God's getting our attention with this, and we need to get right with Him, because if not, there's something even greater coming, another day of the Lord. Now, I want to take a pause here for a second. I want everybody to take out their Old Testament scholar hat, and you go, well, I didn't even know I had one of those. Go ahead and put that on your head for a second. I just want to say a few things about how do we read the Bible and the prophets. We need to know how they work. The prophets always do a really interesting thing for us. They they speak in two ways for us, okay? They always foretell or they foretell, okay? And those aren't just cute words, We'll explain them. Fourth telling is the prophets explain the current situation of God's people according to what he said. Okay, so you can think of Joel chapter 1. Here's this locust plague. Here's what God's doing. Here's what you need to do. That's fourth telling. Even preaching, when we make application, that's fourth telling. Here's what God said. Here's what you need to do. Okay. Foretelling is then explaining what will happen in the future based on what God... Has said, And here, Joel in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Kevin's going to talk a lot about this. He's looking forward into the future now based on what God has done, what he's going to do in the future. And he's saying there's coming a day, a greater day of the Lord, when there's a great army coming against you. And yet in chapter 3, he's going to talk a lot about all the good things that God is going to do for his people, including pour out his spirit. Which Peter quotes Joel at Pentecost, right? I kind of said to Kevin this week, "How come you made me preach the hard section of Joel, and you get the you get the positive fun section? I get the hard section this week." So prophecy then is both can be a foretelling and a foretelling, but also prophecy does this thing. There'll be a local fulfillment of that prophecy, like. The day of the Lord of the locusts, and then there's a, you can think of a spiral going up and getting bigger and bigger, then there's another fulfillment, and another fulfillment, and Joel is speaking in all these levels. So sometimes in prophecy it all mashes together, and we've got to work at what level the prophet is speaking at. You can think about it this way too, it's kind of like when you look at the Wasatch Mountains, and you see the whole mountain range, and it all looks kind of like a flat 2D picture, But if you go hike up one of those mountains, what do you realize? (laughs) There's great valleys and distances and different heights. And that's kind of what happens in the prophets. It all gets mashed together into a 2D picture. But when you dig into it and as they begin to be fulfilled, you see that some of these things are actually quite a distance from one another. And so we have to work at that when we're reading our Bibles. Okay, you can take your Old Testament scholar hat off and you're like, thank you. So Joel is really teaching us about three days of the Lord, and Kevin's going to talk a lot about one of them next week. One is this day of the locust plague, then this coming greater day of the army that's going to come to destroy Jerusalem, and then he's going to talk about a day that we're kind of worried about when God calls all the nations together into judgment. And God's going to say through Joel, we ought to be ready, right, and even look forward to it. Okay, Now, here's the cool thing about what Joel is doing for us is that Joel is saying exactly what Moses said 700 years earlier. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy 28, in a lot of different verses, you can see them on the screen there. Listen to what God said to Moses when he made the covenant to Israel. He said, If you will live by my laws, you'll get all this blessing. But if you don't follow me, then you'll get all this cursing. And this is what he said. He said, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. Right? Verse 42, the cricket shall pass, possess all your trees, the fruit of your ground. 49, then the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. There's our second level of fulfillment. Verse 52, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted Come down, and now our third level, verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among the nations. God shows us His grace, and then He tells us always what He's going to do. He always warns us so far in advance and then he is patient with us over hundreds and hundreds of years. And even when things begin to go wrong, he comes to us and says, here's what you got to get right, and still gives us time to repent and come to him. God is gracious and slow to anger, just like Joel proclaim. He has warned the people hundreds of years in advance. And he begins to proceed along the lines of exactly what he said and he said, now look, repent or what I said 700 years ago that Joel's sayings happening will come about. In fact, Second Peter 3, 9, and 10 talks about the character of the Lord, that he is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's saying, look, God is gracious. He's slow to anger. He will wait hundreds and hundreds of years, but then He will come. And Joel is seeing that final day. He's going to even talk to us about it next week when every person stand before God and our job now is to hear God's word and be ready that's what Joel wants listen to what I'm saying repent and be ready follow God now and listen if you're here this morning and you're hearing God's word and you're hearing him call you to repentance and the goodness of the gospel God is merciful and patient with you If you're here this morning, it's because of His grace and His mercy to you to hear a call to repentance and the answer in the gospel so that you can get right with Him before He shows up. Don't try His patience. Listen, give your life to Christ. Christ died for our sins, taking our punishment. And when we give our life to Him, He puts all of the sins on Jesus. He's punished for our sins, and we get His righteousness. And God says, you are perfectly clean in me. But if you don't follow Christ, your sins will be on you when Jesus shows up. Like we sang this morning, Lord, when you come, may in you I be found. Right? That's where Joel wants us to be. Now, Joel also gives us some cool imagery here in Joel too. Look at verse 3. Kind of summarizes the day. Uh, what this will be like when the army comes. He says, look, fire fire devours before them, and then behind them a flame burns. So in, in essence, when this army comes, it's like they're just fire that devastates everything. He says, the land now is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing will escape them. Basically, he's using some fantastic imagery here, calling us back to Eden, showing that God is doing a work of decreation with the people. He, because of their sin, he's decreating the land, taking it from the blessed Eden that it was, and taking it to a void wilderness. In fact, this process of creation and decreation and recreation this is a huge theme in the Bible. Genesis one one tells us that the world that God had first created, was formless and void, and then he brought it into this special garden with all these plants and animals and everything. It was beautiful. And yet when sin enters the world, what happens? God brings judgment on it. We know in Genesis 6 through 8, God destroys the whole world. He decreates it through a flood in response to man's sin. And yet what does he do? He recreates it with the family. It makes a new covenant with Noah. In fact, as we just read, 2 Peter 3, 10 and 13, book of Revelation, looks forward to the day when God will wipe the slate clean on our earth, right? This is a dying planet. One day God's going to wipe it out, and yet what's He going to do? He's going to recreate it through Christ, right? Joel is saying here in Jerusalem, God is decreating our land because of our sin, But what comes after that is going to be a great recreation of the people and what God is doing on the earth. In fact, I wish I could preach that, but Kevin's going to preach that next week. So why is that important? Why do I point this out to you? Because we live out this process every time we sin and repent. Okay? When we sin, we subject ourselves to the consequences of our sin and the fall of our own, of the fall Sin brings death into our world, in our own lives, in our collective sin, bouncing off each other's. It's a bad place to be, right? And when the process of sinning, we are being decreated because of God's judgment. And yet, when we repent in Christ, what does God say He will do? I will make you a new creation. I will recreate your heart and transform you and your situation. This is the picture of baptism, that we got to die to ourselves and go under the waters as if we're being buried so that we can raise up with Christ to new life, be recreated. Romans four seventeen says, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Even though you may feel like you're dying under the weight of your sin or the things that have come into your life, If you will submit yourself to God, God says, I will do a work of recreation in your life and in your heart. God can redeem your life, your relationships, your hope. But we got to walk the path of death with him to ourselves to find him to find life. This is the hope we have in the gospel. Though we sin and we are decreated, though we die, we will yet be raised to new life in him. And Joel's going to show us that repentance is the remedy that sets us on that pathway to being recreated. Look at what it says here in Joel 2.12. Uh, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious And merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. For who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Here Joel gives us what God is looking for as we repent. And I think there's four things we just want to see here. First, he wants your heart. Okay, Return to me with all your heart or tear your heart. Repentance is first and foremost an attitude of our heart, right? It's heart that leads to action. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. See, there's two kinds of repentance. Sometimes we do the first, where we're sad about the circumstances, we're sad about the consequences, we're sad we got uh, caught, but we could care less about how we offended God or other people, right? And we say, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But our heart is not repenting. And Paul is saying there's a repentance of the heart which realizes it's sinned against a holy God. It laments and weeps. It feels it, right? And it says, oh, God, I'm sorry for sinning against you and all the things that I have caused. Joel is saying he's looking for heartfelt repentance. God is looking for this. And he lists fasting and weeping and mourning. These aren't a pattern of what to do to get to repentance, right? It's not about the religious aspects that we do this and God says, oh, now you're repenting. It's, but those are a symptom of a heart that has been torn, that knows it's, it's sin. In fact, this week I spent some time praying in here. This is me in Kevin's prayer closet, by the way praying in here over some of the sin in my life and just weeping to God. God, why do I do this? Why do I act like this? I'm so sorry. I don't want it to be this way. Please forgive me. Let's be a people that are broken over our sin. We don't like to sin and lament, but we need to do it, God says. So we have heartfelt repentance. Secondly, God also wants to turn to him as We repent. Not just I'm sorry, and then I continue down the same pathway. But we repentance is really doing a U-turn and going the other way. We turn away from the sin that entangles us, and we turn to God. New Testament describes this as a a putting off of the old ways of sin and putting on new godly ways. Colossians three one through seventeen talks about this whole process because in light of our salvation in Christ, it says then we should. Put to death what is earthly in us, and it lists all the sins of life. Then verse 12, it says, then we should put on godly attributes, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and thankfulness. In repentance, we put down sin so we can pick up godliness. Listen, when you get rid of sin, you've got to replace it with something. The Bible says it's picking up these godly attributes, working in the things of God. It's like changing our clothes. What do you need to put down this morning and what do you need to pick up? Thirdly, it's, Joel is telling us we should repent in faith based on God's character. If you notice right here, Joel says the exact same words that Jonah said last week about God. In fact, a lot of people think that Joel is looking back at Jonah where where. Joel says here, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relents over disaster. He's looking back and thinking about Jonah going, if God relented then for the Ninevites, he might relent for us if we will just repent because of who he is. And so we come to God in faith. Repentance requires faith that you believe that God is gracious and merciful and loving or you won't come to him. You'll be scared of him. But God's character doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, I the Lord don't change. 2 Peter 3.9, God wants all people to find repentance and salvation. Joel is saying you need to to come to God because of his character. In fact, this is part of the Christian life that the the quicker we got to learn to come, the quicker to God in our sin. You know, our, our, our... our impulse is to hide like Adam and Eve and not want to deal with God and run away. And God says, come to me. I'm gracious and merciful. If you come to me sinful, I'll send you away clean. Right? And we do this in faith, knowing who God is. And finally, fourth, I think when we repent, we should look forward to the restored relationship and blessing that Kevin gets to talk about. Joel says, turn because God may relent. And I love this. And and he says, he might even leave a blessing. That's such a crazy thing to say, right? And when you experience this, when you come to God and you repent and he cleanses you, and then he actually does really great things in your life, man, that's like a drug, right? You're like, God, I like that. And I like you, and I'm going to keep following you. This is what... Paul gets at Romans 2 4 God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and sometimes when I come to God I can't believe what he has done for me as I come back to him Joel says let's get on it right let's come to God now we're coming to the end here he's saying let's get on it let's learn from Jonah and the people of Nineveh let's repent based on his character and look forward to his blessing. Look what he says in verse 15. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the peoples, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room in the bride chamber, or the bride, her chamber. I'll let you think about what that means. It says, let's get together and repent From the heart before the Lord, because we know who he is. He is gracious and merciful, and he will relent and even leave blessing. In fact, Joel 3.32 is going to say this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's who God is. If you'll call out to him, you'll be saved. That's his character. Wherever you are in life, if you call out to him, you can be saved for the first time or the hundredth time. If you'll come to him. In band, you can come on up. Finally, love what Joel says in Joel 2.17. He says, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep and say to the Lord, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage or reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? In other words, why should the nations Accuse God of not being true to his character. Is, is he worthy to be followed? Is he worthy of saving us? Will he save us? Joel wants the priest to intercede on behalf of the people for God. You know what the Bible tells us in Romans? That we have a better priest who's interceding now for us on our behalf. Romans 8, 34 tells us that now in Jesus we have a better priest who's interceding for us. Romans, or Hebrews four fourteen tells us that through Jesus we ought to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Where do you need Jesus to help you this morning? God says come because you have a great priest who's saying God spare your people and their names are Tom and Jim and Jairus. Finally, we see that God is something at stake when we are His. He wants the whole world to give him, his glo- give him His glory. In fact, that's what Joel's getting at. Will the nation say God's not worth it? In fact, God is going to be true to His character to justify Himself before the nation so that they'll see that God's got something at stake when you come and repent before Him. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23, it says, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my name, that I will vindicate the holiness of my great name when he saves you. When God saves you, the world gets to see exactly who he is. And you can guarantee when you come back to him, he'll show who he is. Because he wants the world to know it we get to do that in the blood of Christ he's going to gather us out of the nations as he's doing cleanse us from his sins put his spirit in us and teach us to walk in his ways so the nations will know his character so as we come to an end this morning as we look around the world and we have things that don't go our way and fantastic events in the world Joel says let those things drive you to God Let those things show you that you need God and that you don't know what's coming, so be ready, get right with God. And the way to do that is repentance, that we would get before God and rip our hearts, say, God, I'm so sorry, but we do it in faith knowing that God is merciful and gracious and he will love you, he will cleanse you, and guess what? He might even leave a blessing that we're going to talk about next week. That God's got really good things for those that will come to Him. Won't you come to Him this morning? So, as you sing this song this morning, we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? Right? Is He going to show Himself to be the God He said He is? Will He be worthy of praise? And Joel says, You can guarantee it. He's going to act according to His nature, and one day the whole world's going to praise Him for His grace, His mercy his steadfast love, and what he did for us to save him as his people.